subscribe to Feminism and Firearms. I uh, give it up for Amanda. Thank you guys for coming. It's so great to see such a big crowd. Um, yeah, my name is Amanda Flokini. I work with the Nevada Young Republicans. I am the social media coordinator. And I work with the lovely Miranda Hoover, who uh, is kind of the brainchild behind this. But I also want to give a shout out to all of our sponsors, uh, specifically uh, the College Republicans President Tanner Durfee. Thank you so much for all your help here at also, the Washoe Republican Women's Club. You guys are amazing. Thank you for supporting women Republicans in Nevada. Again, Miranda Hoover, thank you for all you do. This is wonderful. Such a great turnout. I'd also like to thank Karen and Emily from the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute for being a part of this amazing event and uh, just, yeah, doing all that you guys do. It's really important. to give a shout out. Thank you for Assemblywoman Alexis Hansen for being here. Very excited to have you. And again, our speakers, Antonia and Amanda. We're so excited to have them and I think you guys are going to are in for a real treat. So I'd like to introduce Eve Littman. She's one of our students, uh, conservative activists. She's amazing. She works with Young Americans for Liberty. So give her a round of applause. Amanda Collins is a director of Women for Concealed Carry, where she advocates for women's rights to self-defense. She's a graduate student of UNR right now, where or she was a graduate student where she has earned a bachelor's degree in secondary education and English. And as a Second Amendment advocate, Amanda has worked tirelessly to ensure women across the U.S. are given the ability to choose how to protect themselves particularly on college campuses, and because of Amanda's effort, more and more women are able to protect themselves in ways that Amanda was not when she became a rape victim while, at, while a student at the University of Nevada, Reno. And if you want to learn more about uh, Amanda's story, you can look at her NRA profile on YouTube. And our other speaker, Antonia Okafar, is uh, one of the country's foremost advocates for concealed carry on campus. In 2015, she made a permanent mark on the Second Amendment community when she became the Southwest Regional Director for Students for Concealed Carry on Campus, where she advocated for the passing and successful implementation of the Concealed Carry on Campus in Texas law, known as Concealed Carry, or Campus Carry. The National Rifle Association, the NRA, took notice of her activism and had her star in one of their Freedom Safest Places commercials, a national campaign that highlights the diversity of NRA members, and she's a current graduate student at the University of Texas at Dallas, and she, signs, she shows no signs of slowing down. Good evening. Thank you so much for having us here. It's so nice to be back in Nevada, where people know how to say Nevada. <laughs> yeah, she taught me earlier. So. Yeah, actually, I actually, I, 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 I really know where I said, you know how to say Nevada, right? 
because if you say it wrong, you're going to get booed off the stage and not ever be invited back. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm doing you a service. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda, for that. You're welcome. I do what I can to help. Yeah, so we thought it would be better to just have this conversation with we both were asked to, to come here and speak um, about this topic. Um, we were just like, let's just let's have a conversation about it. Let's just do it where we're conversational, we're almost interviewing each other, and you guys kind of get to take a peek into what we're, our mindset and our process. So um, I'm going to be asking her questions and going back and forth, and then we'll do Q&A after that. Um, but I'm going to start off, Amanda, can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing? Sure. I was born and raised here, right here in Reno, Nevada. And um, I think one of the most impactful memories I have started off very normal, actually. I was playing a board game with my sister in her room, and to be honest, I was just so excited that my big sister let me be in her room. And um, when I was goofing around, or I don't know, I thought it was like my God-given mission to antagonize her, and so I think I was fulfilling that completely in the moment when my mother came in, and I thought for sure she was just going to tell me to like, cut it out. And she surprisingly asked both my sister and I, hey, how are you two enjoying your Taekwondo lessons that you, we just started? <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I looked at her and said, I don't like them. It's really boring. And she said, oh, well, your dad and I just decided that you and your sister need to get your second degree black belt before you can get your driver's license when you turn 16. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't know what a driver's license was, but I knew I wanted one. <laughs> and it took until I was about eight years old to realize that that was just like a rule in the Collins household, not like a rule for everybody. Um, but in that, my parents set this trajectory of teaching perseverance, teaching self-control, courage, and um, they, they began instilling in both my sister and I how important it was to take our own safety seriously and to make it our responsibility. Um, and so, and I, I grew up in a, a Second Amendment friendly home. Another one of my earliest memories is going down to my dad's workshop and asking him to tuck me in for bed and he was cleaning his firearm and just set me up on the, the workbench behind it and was very matter of fact about this is a firearm, this is what it does, it's never a toy, daddy uses it to you know, go hunting, to provide food for the family, if I ever needed to protect the family, I could do that with this. And it was an ongoing open conversation for us. And I always had a really healthy respect for what firearms were and what they were meant to be used for. Um, and then I ended up actually shooting competitively in high school for my high school um, and went on from there. So. How about you tell me about about your upbringing and what your experience was like? Yeah, very different from that. Um, so starting out, like you did at five, um, I you know had a, I was 
in a broken home. Um, at five, I was actually sexually assaulted. Um, and then shortly after that, my dad, for a different crime, my dad went to prison for 20 years for selling drugs, for drug trafficking. And so early on, you know, I was in a broken home. My mom was a single parent. Um, I was the oldest of four. My parents are Nigerian immigrants. Um, so very different upbringing in, in the broken home aspect, but also the aspect of when it comes to the Second Amendment, I mean, my family didn't know what the Second Amendment was. Like, they're from Nigeria, right? Like, having civilians who, are, who have access to firearms was um, just unfathomable. And then to also be in America where, you know, they're Democrats. Like, they're Roman Catholic and they're pro-life, but other than that, they were Democrats. And so I grew up, you know, essentially believing the whole enough is enough narrative being anti-gun, um, just subscribing to all of those types of beliefs because I was a Democrat. I was supposed to be a Democrat. And so um, didn't know, I didn't shoot until, you know, I was 25 and that comes later. Um, but I went to college as a Democrat, saying I'm anti-gun, saying pro-abortion, um, very, uh, voted for Obama twice. Um, so very different upbringing and um, essentially if I did think about the Second Amendment it was in a negative light so that was actually my upbringing. Interesting. <laughs> yeah very different from yours. Yeah. 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 So then when we fast forward to when we both started going to college yeah. and I actually went here at the University of Nevada Reno and I remember during my freshman orientation, my dad walked me around and kind of showed me where all my classes were going to be. And I remember one of my classes was in the old quad. I don't even know, is that still used here? Yeah, okay. Well, he showed me the old library and he showed me the steps where he had a, a real first conversation with my mom and uh, shared the story about how he had met her the weekend before and he was just so excited to see her and um, it was just really neat. It was like seeing my dad back in college and seeing the twinkle in his eye that he had for my mom and um, you know just how it like all started and my family has a huge, a really long history and a really big um, alumni group that is from here so I was really excited to be able to be partaking in that family tradition and um, just felt, I don't know how to explain it, like I, it was what my, it was never an option going to college, it was an absolute for my family and so it was like I had finally arrived to everything that my parents had been preparing me for growing up and I, I finally made it, you know, and um, I still took my own, like my own, um, self-defense and very, very seriously, was always very aware of my surroundings. And when I turned 22, I moved out of my sorority house and was living with some roommates. And so at that point, I knew that the one equalizing factor that I would have if I was ever met with an attacker much larger than me, which is not difficult for people to do, to be larger than me, um, would be a firearm. And so for my birthday, I asked my dad to, for my concealed carry permit. Um, consequently, my now husband 
and I took that class together on our three-month anniversary of dating. And Goals. Yeah, yeah. Couples that get their kids still carry together, stay together. Um, but, and so I, I was really, you know, you do all these things for like risk reduction, right? My parents did, you, you look at how they raised their girls and they did everything right. They equipped us with skills to be able to defend ourselves effectively. They gave us the ability further to choose how we wanted to defend our bodies. And then my fourth year here, my whole life changed. Everything, the whole narrative for my life changed and kind of came to a halt. And um, what happened is I was um, taking a class at the, the College of Education and my class got over with at 10 p.m., which was very normal for an education class in the evening. I left with a group of people because it had been ingrained in my training that there is safety in numbers. And you do everything you can to not have to use the skills that you acquire. <clears throat> and so when we got to the, the, the parking garage where I had parked that night because it was seemingly safer to park there than to have to walk across to off-campus parking by the, uh, the cemetery, you know, like, Okay, you guys know about the cemetery. Um, I didn't see anything between myself and my vehicle. The way I was approaching my vehicle and the way I was aware of my surroundings was nothing new for me. I wish the group I was with a really good, said, hey, have a good night, we'll see you next week. I started heading to my vehicle and then it became abundantly clear that what I hadn't seen was a man that was touched behind the wheel well of a truck in a city and he, um, he forced me to the ground and buried me at gunpoint, less than 50 feet away from the campus police office on the same floor where they parked their cruisers. But it was 10 o'clock. Campus police closes at 6. I was a law-abiding citizen, so I didn't have my firearm because it's not allowed on campus. So the, the question of my life, even now, my attack was almost 12 years ago. On the 22nd, next Tuesday, it will be 12 years ago. Um, it still continues to be, what would have been different if I had been carrying my firearm that night? And um, some of you may know the story very well. It became the most well-known case at the time in Northern Nevada. My uh, rapist went on to kidnap and uh, raped his second victim, and he raped and murdered his last known victim, and is now sitting on death row. So, your college experience was that of kind of like a, a conversion for you as well. How about you? You talk about that. Yeah, and yeah, college was definitely formative for me, and I think in a different way than most of, especially conservatives here, um, know that most people are supposed to go to college and be like radical liberal Democrats, right? Like you're supposed to be that. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, I kind of took the opposite approach, and um, I was already that when I went into college. Uh, several things happened. Um, one, uh, when I turned 20, I became a born-again Christian, I became a believer. Um, so that really, yeah. <laughs> um, that 
really changed my, my viewpoint and my, my mindset in a lot of things. And the reason why I brought up what happened to me when I was five um, is really always to show my mindset of why I did the things that I did and what I gravitated to when I was in college, why I was gravitating towards modern feminism and you know progressivism and you know things like that that we're supposed to the world tells you is supposed to empower you and is supposed to as a woman that's what you're supposed to seek you're supposed to seek abortion because you know abortion is you know important to you you're gonna have a life of your own you can't you know you need to sacrifice that child for your own life and that's what the feminist movement is about right uh, no, it's not. But uh, that's what you believe um, at that time. And so there's so many other things that I, I mean, I was radical feminist and I would teach feminism to inner city girls. Um, again, because I was, it was this journey from five years old to what I was at that point of trying to get that power that I lost when I was five and trying to get that power back. And unfortunately going into places that was just false empowerment. Um, and so when I was saved, God just really radically just shed a lot of those viewpoints that I had. And ultimately really is because I, I found out where my true empowerment comes from and that's from Jesus Christ and my faith in him. And so he was my healer. He was my changing my, you know, my viewpoints and stuff and, and you know, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Therefore, you will be able to pass and test, you know, um, you know, the things of this world. And so that's what happened for me. And um, it was the feminism aspect, though, and seeking that stuff and seeking female empowerment and wanting to empower myself at the same time of empowering other women that I realized that the feminist movement and the narrative was incomplete that if the feminist movement talks about, you know, you know, bodily autonomy and that I, my, I own my own body and I should, you know, you know, be able to do what I want with my own body, then why is it that the gun rights movement wasn't part of this? Why don't I have the ability to choose, right? I'm going to be able to, the right to choose. Why don't I have the right to choose how to defend myself? Um, isn't that true, female empowerment? Isn't that, you know, really taking safety into my own hands, something that should encourage more feminists and should be something that feminists encourage? And so I started to see a lot of the, a lot of the fallacies in the feminist movement, particularly with the gun rights issue. And in Texas, I was a grad student in 2015 and coming across these types of you know, thoughts in my head and um, realizing that, you know, I would leave grad classes at 10, 11 o'clock at night and the only school administration approved types of self-defense tools I was allowed was uh, 911, which I would, I would literally pre-dial 911 and cell phone in my one hand and have my rape whistle that they gave me at freshman orientation um, in the other hand. And that was my protection going home at night every day. And so, yeah, and Amanda, yeah. you want to talk about your experience with that? Yeah, so when, um, with my case, Brianna Dennison was missing for several weeks, and once her body was found, this man was still at large, and terror was all over our community, because we didn't know what was going on. I didn't know where he was. I didn't know if he was still watching me. I, um, the way I was taken, the way with my patterns, it was, 
they speculated that he watched me for a couple weeks before he, he acted. And so my dad wrote a letter to the president of the university pleading with him to use the right to grant me permission to use my concealed carry permit on campus as was outlined in his ability in the Nevada law. <clears throat> to this day, to my knowledge, I am the only person that has had that granted to me. It took a semester, it took an entire semester, and it came with several stipulations. One of which being, if I was to ever share that, it would be null and void. So while Brianna Denison was missing, <clears throat> They handed up these. Because this is more dignifying and this is more effective and empowering than allowing us to choose how we want to participate in our own self-defense. So this is what I was given to walk around campus with as I was terrified whether or not my attacker was watching me or going to come out and get me or even kill me because I provided the police with a sketch that circulated the community. So this, I'm gonna blow it for you, it's not that effective. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it is so interesting that you bring up with the, the feminism movement of the holes in that and wanting, you know, it's all about emotion, it's all about Roe v. Wade, and it begins and ends there, where I'm supposed to tell the government, stay out of my body, you don't get to have a say on what goes inside my body, oh, but when I wanna say, let me choose how I defend my body, that you can have a say on, go ahead. And invite that in, and I, I think that there's this misconception that conservative, those of us who are for concealed carry, are saying everybody should carry, right? Like that's what everybody should choose. But no, if we're really pro-choice, then we're all for people choosing how they want to defend themselves. If it's not for you, great. Don't carry. That's fine. But move out of the way while I choose that I want to. Yeah, and it, it brings me to a question. You know, I was at the, the assault weapons ban uh, hearing in DC just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And being in that room, first of all, four hours of just hearing just complete this nonsense, AK-15s, like things like that, like, come on. What's an AK-15? I want to know what that is. I'm um, before you try to ban it. Um, but yeah, so just blatant, just absolutely like false falsehoods. And of course, uh, the women behind me, they were moms of in action and they were snickering when, um, you know, people were talking about the right to choose and, you know, gun rights are women's rights and, you know, that's absolutely absurd to them. And, but being in that room and hearing all that stuff, all the lawmakers who are supposed to be protecting our individual rights and protecting our Second Amendment rights, um, finding reasons why, you know, us civilians, we don't need things like that. But why would you, why would you want 
an AR-15? Why would you want an AK? Why do you need an AK-47? Why do you need um, anything like that, right? Of course, it would say stuff even more so, like, why do you need semi-automatic weapon? Like, oh, you mean all guns? Because <laughs> those are semi-automatics. Um, yeah, so, and then this police chief of Charlottesville, she was there, the police chief, and just, she was the worst of all, right? Here, this, Law and you know this law enforcement officer who takes an oath to protect our constitutional, you know, the constitution, not our constitutional rights. It's our God-given rights that the constitution protects. Um, she was more concerned about her life, right, and that the fact that civilians might have these firearms than you know actually doing what her job, you know, was entailed, which actually protecting our rights and protecting us as individuals, but it just really reminded me that we talk about being law-abiding citizens, we talk about being, you know, activists and stuff like that, but then there I was just like, but here's government, here's public servants, here's, you know, public safety officials who are supposed to protect me, but at the end of the day, I'm supposed to protect myself, and that's what the Second Amendment's about. It's not about hunting, it's not about even self-defense, even though we talk about that, it's important to us. Right. It's about being able to protect our lives and protect our freedoms against a tyrannical government. Yeah. I live now very close to DC. Um, I'm currently a stay-at-home mom who homeschools our children, and so I was unable to go to the hearing that I had it on in the background, and I heard that question, and I yelled, <laughs> My four girls, they're like, what is going on with mom? <laughs> but, um, oh, why do citizens need this? I'm like, because you have it. That's why. Exactly. Like, I don't trust you if you don't trust me as a law-abiding citizen with the same tools that you have. And, you know, it opened up the conversation with my girls to be able to let them know, like, hey, we became a country because we were able to defend ourselves and overtake a government that was of tyranny. And um, we have the same weapons that they have to be able to defend ourselves and to get our freedom. And so when people say that we don't need firearms, we don't need specific firearms, I want to know why are you targeting that specific firearm? Absolutely. Like, why are you, like, why? Yeah, and someone, I, I will not take credit for this, but it was just so eloquently said, it's like, it's not a bill of needs, it's a bill of rights. Okay. Yeah. Um, so good. Um, but yeah, exactly. But I was gonna, I was bringing that up because it really made me think. Okay, we always push law abiding, a law abiding citizen, law abiding citizen. Why are you doing this to me? But what if the law is? What if they pass that and they say, and they passed it before? It's like, what if? You know, at that point, if the Second Amendment really is about that, then. Um, and I was thinking about like, you know, why you're talking about during, you know, what happened there that you didn't bring your, your concealed carry, your firearm because you were law-abiding. And, and I just wonder, I mean, you're okay not to tell us and, and that's okay, but if you could have done things differently or go back, would you have continued to, would you even care about being law-abiding? Hindsight's always twenty twenty, isn't it? Um, you know that question to a certain degree. 
has kept me up so many nights. I'm not like do that, like a lot of questions keep us up at night, right? And um, I know with all my being that had I been caring that night, I know I wouldn't have been able to prevent my attack from starting, but I would have been able to stop it as it was in progress. And um, consequently, three lives would have been saved. Because my soul was murdered that night. It's not, I think there's just such a misunderstanding of what rape actually does to a human being. And, you know, I've been asked, or people so often try to offer, oh, you would have been so worse off, worse off if you'd been carrying your firearm. He could have shot you. Like, he had a gun. He could have shot him then. And I just think my life now is beautiful. I have a beautiful, full life, and I am so abundantly blessed. And yet, as I sit here today, Antonia, I still would have rather died trying to preserve my dignity. Is that as a law-abiding citizen, or hadn't been caring that night, I stood to lose a whole lot more than what my attacker did. But think about this. If I had been carrying illegally, I would have faced jail time, a felony, losing my right to carry, been expelled from school, my whole future that I was working for would have been taken from me if I had breaking the law. Do you want to know what my attacker, what uh, James Beale got for having a gun where he shouldn't have? A one-year enhancement charge. There's something wrong with that. So it's not so much if I would have broken the law, it's let's change the laws so that criminals get a harsher punishment and have more to lose than the law-abiding citizens do. so dry here and growing up here I would hear people complain about that and I would look at them and be like you are so weak what are you talking about it's fine just fuck up and now that I've been living in northern Virginia like you know super humid and stuff and I'm here I'm like water (laughs) okay I remember my question um so going into that so after uh, college um, campus carry. So what made you, so there's so many, unfortunately, there's so many, yeah. you know, sexual assault survivors, but at least what you hear on TV is you don't hear that person then advocate for more gun rights, right? Or yeah. campus carry. So what brought you to, I mean, yes, your background, and we heard about that, um, but to actually start fighting for campus carry? Well, that wasn't going to, who was? Um, I mean, honestly, it was just being so incredibly frustrated. Frustrated for me, frustrated for my parents. I can't even imagine what it's like for them to walk through that with a child after trying to equip them with everything to to even to prevent that. And um, realizing that the very law that was intended, I would like to believe, was intended to ensure my safety 
is a law that legislated me into being an unmatched victim that night. And I wanted to kind of open up the conversation with that and change the narrative and, and say like, hey, um, he didn't care. Like that sign, that law, that piece of paper did not stop the criminal from doing harm and being evil. And I, I even at the time proposed like, hey, if we're gonna be you know, a gun-free zone, let's be a gun-free zone, let's make this a gated community, let's put up metal detectors around the, the buildings, let's, you know, let's do this. Oh, that's too much money. Okay. Um, let's shorten the, let's extend the police, campus police hours. Can we, can we do that? So that when students are getting out of class at 10 p.m., they're not having to wait a whole lot longer for a longer response time. The national response time as it is, is 12 minutes. My rate lasted eight. Um, so that's too much money. So what did they do? They handed out whistles. They lit up that parking garage across the street like a Christmas tree to help deter, I don't know what. They don't even have security cameras. Well, they didn't at the time. I don't know if they do now but there's not even security cameras. So it was really um, just wanting to prevent anybody from having my story. No one should have to have my story. And no one should have to wait to have my story for their right to, be, to carry, to protect themselves, to be granted. This isn't, I'm so tired of this being a politically driven issue. It's not Republican, it's not Democrat, it is American. Some common ground, and likewise with um, that whole journey really led me to also just realizing where our culture is in general with sexual assault. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just seeing like the Me Too movement, and I mean, and again, like, like when I was looking at the feminist movement, even when I was in college, just so many of the conversation it always ends at, you know, the victim, right? Or not even the survivor, but the victim, um, and not the after, not what we can do also to, to prevent things like that, like things like campus carry, like encouraging more women to carry, right? That's when it's too much, I and mean, you're not supposed to encourage women to carry. Like we were talking about it, it's, it's, it's always <laughs> um, critical and just yeah. completely funny to me when, in, you know, like places like Moms Me in Action, and they'll say, you know, it's it's worse for a woman to have a gun because they're more likely to use it, against, you know, the criminals are more likely to use it against them instead of using it in self-defense. And like stuff like that, they're completely sexist, by the way. It's like, oh, we're equal, right? Except when we have guns, then you guys are not confident, or you're too weak to have a gun, you don't know what you're doing. Um, very empowering, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. No, it was just that, like, oh, we can do the same thing as men in the military, and we can do the same thing as men, you know, and I'm not, well, when it comes to carrying a gun and defending ourselves, no, no, honey, you're, you're weaker. Right. You need, to, you need to hand that over to a man. And then um, just with the, 
the push and focus on abortion, it always just gets me really frustrated because <clears throat> oftentimes to preserve Roe v. Wade, people will say, oh, what if a woman gets raped? Do you really want that to happen? Do you really want a, a, a survivor? Because now there's survivor to have to do that. But nobody talks about how four years after Roe v. Wade was passed, Georgia B. Coker was passed, where they overturned the death penalty for rape because they said it's cruel and unusual punishment because the rapist doesn't take a life. So if we cared as a culture, and if we really cared about women not getting raped, we would be up in arms about Georgia B. Coker being overturned than we would about, way more than we would be about preserving Roe v. Wade. We'd be up in arms, period. <laughs> I know, all of the hunts that come with this, it's really easy. But yeah, I mean, and that's what, you know, I said about the feminist movement, like, that's what led me to fighting for campus carry in Texas, because like, yeah. well, if I really want to give my peer, my female peers, a fighting chance, because I know what it means to be completely vulnerable and completely yeah. defenseless, and I don't want another woman to ever have to yeah. even get to that point where she's 20 years down the line, still trying to get healed, still trying to you know, go through counseling, because yes, it, your soul dies at that point, right? Um, yeah. Then what, what, effect, what things can I actually do to be proactive and to help other women? And that's what I was like, well, conceal carry. If I'm able to have that right off campus, then why, why isn't this, you know, obviously they're not protecting women like they say right. they should. Um, in 2011, actually, at that time when I was in college, Obama actually put out a whole survey about you know sexual assaults across you know, universities, and um, one of the universities, the highest university uh, for sexual assaults, was in Dallas, in that area. And I just remember thinking, okay, we're talking about feminism, we're talking about how I empower other women, and talking about empowering my my peers, but why is the conversation about actually letting those peers protect them of their, their own selves on campus. Why are we you know, stopping that conversation? So I became the Southwest Director for Student for Concealed Carry, and that was my push and my desire and fuel was always remembering the woman, the other woman that I could, maybe just one woman. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people in an even conservative movement were you know, they talk about the numbers, one, four, one, and five. But for me, and I know for you, that if we can just save just one girl, I'm happy with that. I think mean, that's all that matters, is we can just save just one. Too, is that people will say, oh, those numbers are skewed. You're right, they are, because the majority of sexual assaults continue to go unreported. But let's step back. If it's just one, that is one too many. Right. And in advocating for, for campus carry, my eyes were really, really open to our cultural point of view on sexual assault. And I'm convinced that campus carry has not been passed here because we just don't understand what rape does or we just don't care that it continues to happen on our universities. And I know that that is like uh, an extremely offensive statement to come from my mouth and good if it offends you but let me ask you something 
Um, or let me share something with you, really. In my um, my advocacy efforts for campus carry, I cannot count the number of times I would sit across the office from somebody trying to you know get their vote for campus carry, and I would be asked, "Well, this video will be wearing." I mean, are you sure he didn't like? Think you were looking for them? Like, oh, while I was walking to my car? Pretty sure. Um, it's really unfortunate that you put yourself in that situation as a man. You know what you should have done. This is what you should have done. And then I offer up that the antidote that, for some reason, they think that I haven't already thought of. Um, and just way more offensive comments about. You know, well, it's no big deal, right? I mean, it's just one. It's just, it's just a couple minutes. It's not a lifelong thing. And um, I realized that that's why people don't come forward. That's why they don't so come forward because we don't need to deal with that. We already have this whole internal dialogue going on with ourselves. And then when people on the outside start speaking into that, it just reaffirms the lies that we're believing about ourselves. And so I started a nonprofit in 2015, or I started the process of starting a nonprofit after Campus Carry didn't pass again in the Nevada legislature. Um, and it's called Tear Speak, which stands for Teaching and Empowering Assault Rape Survivors. And it's geared at educating society about the silent tears that we cry and we weep and to give a voice and a platform to survivors to be able to say, like, this happened to me? Oh, but that's not my, that's not the end point in my life. Like, that's not what's gonna define my life or um, have the final say in my life because the empowering part for me is equipping women. And I know that men get raped as well, but I don't, I don't speak on on that because I don't have the, the perspective, that perspective. Um, but encouraging women to be able to reclaim the full life that they're intended to live before somebody murdered their soul. Because the enemy, it, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He will come to steal your life, destroy your soul, and kill all your relationships too. And I think a lot of times our, um, our loved ones are the forgotten collateral damage. And so it's also like my tear speak is also about bringing in um, support for the families. I mentioned at the time that I got my concealed carry permit that my boyfriend and I have been dating for three years. He's now my husband. We've been married for 11. Um, and um, I just I saw that this conversation of campus carry needed to be taken way back to even why it's important to preserve our dignity and what that looks like. Yeah, and then after the whole thing with passing and you know with Texas campus carry. For me, it had always been, like I said, about the female empowerment aspect of it. And unfortunately, there wasn't representation. There weren't people like me um, really out there talking about campus carry as much. 
um, as I would like, and finding out how hard it was for especially young women on campus to get on board, whether Republican or Democrat. Um, just because I think there are a lot of different things, but I just don't think there's been mixing the two of female empowerment and gun ownership and why as a woman that is important for you and getting them early in high school and in college. And so that's why I started my organization, Empower 2A, um, because I knew if we were really gonna stop the future moms and man action, you know, activists, we had to get them earlier. Um, we had to get them in college, we had to get them in high school, and we had to educate, we had to train, we had to, you know, help them advocate for this, for this, you know, right on campus to protect themselves and talk about the narrative, take over the narrative um, that college students talk about when it comes to sexual assault. Because the narrative on campus is not about, okay, then have campus carry. No, it's, let's talk about what we're going to do to the perpetrator, right? Um, due process. Like, all of these things are always about the actual criminal um, aftermath of what happens instead of talking about preventative solutions and empowering women to take safety into their own hands because it's it's not really about female empowerment, it's about a radical agenda that they have um, that has nothing to do with that, it's just anti-gun and um, pro-abortion. So, yeah. I think, uh, unless there's anything else, I mean, yeah, we're gonna open up to people who have questions. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Oh, this gentleman up here asked if I had counseling after the event, and um, my answer is, oh, yeah. I had a lot of couch time, um, a lot of couch time. It's, but, um, and I think that that is so important for that service to be provided to survivors, for sure. Yes? How many states do you have campus to allow it on their specific campus or to not. Right. So, like, for example, in Tennessee, they have campus carry, but it's actually only uh, staff and, and faculty members who are really allowed to carry. Um, so, and, and for example, in Arkansas, they pass campus carry as well, but instead of uh, just allowing people who already have their campus, their concealed carry permit, they have to go to eight hours of additional training um, that's specific to the student body. So a lot of different, every state has almost different versions. And so I always look at Texas as a, as a good example of what I would like other states to have um, because it's every four-year university and community college has to have campus carry. Now the private aspect of it, we. We understand private property rights, and unfortunately, um, every university except for one um, said no to campus carry. But they have their they have that option of not banning it. So that's what they chose. But every state is so different when it comes to it. Yeah. Um, on that note, Texas law we tried thirteen here, didn't make it. Thirteen, mm -hmm. we thought we had it in the assembly, we did. Mm -hmm. 
we were sold down the river by a senator in, in, the, in the Senate and we lost. So what is the difference in, in Texas? In your fight to get it passed, have, have you had to do it multiple mm -hmm. times? And then what do you think was the kicker that helped you get it uh, when it did pass? Yeah, it took three sessions, and we're every other year too, so it's not every year. Um, we we meet. So the last one, and it was even the the, the time before that it actually passed, and it was literally like midnight, like eleven forty-seven. I went to bed, and I was like, it's over. And then waking up, like, oh, this <laughs> it, it passed because they, you know, changed things last minute. But um, and it's always like that. And unfortunately, sometimes it's a lot of times it is Republicans too. Yeah, that yeah, like you said, um, selling on the river. Same thing has been happening in Florida. It's been Republicans who have said no. Um, unfortunately, even when they have, you know, control. And so part of that is why you have to, I'm not saying dirt, but you have to tell people what's going on, um, getting more people involved and then letting them know that just because you're in Texas, just because you're in Mississippi or whatever does not mean that the universities that campaign hard against campus carry, the administrators, student government leaders who will go and lobby and go to the Capitol and say, I represent the whole entire student body and we don't believe in campus carry. And you guys who are students don't even know it happens. So that's the type of stuff that people don't see that really have so much power in the student government you know, aspects of things. For example, in Baylor. Uh, Baylor, the student body actually said they had to pass resolutions of whether they agreed with campus carrier or not. Baylor University in Waco, Texas. And they said yes. Well, the student government president actually vetoed that resolution. And so that is why they don't have campus carry right now. So it makes a big difference on the big difference on the student government aspect, and but also getting that representation to the capital and saying yes, we want campus carry, and this is the actual representation of that. So I would say that's the biggest. That was the biggest difference, is getting that. Yeah. Going off of what you just said, oh, sorry, are we talking about the details? I was talking to him. Oh, sorry. <laughs> You'll be next. <laughs> um, do we see uh, improvement in, in campus carry? Do we see more of it happening uh, recently? And uh, do you think this present administration is helping us with that? It's well. It's a really first of all. It's a really good state by state issue. Um, and that's probably part of the when people think about campus carry, they might think it's a gut like you know other Second Amendment issues, and think it's something that the president would have a say in. Other than like him just saying I support it, um, it's not he doesn't have a say in it. Um, it's state by state, uh, which I would still take President Trump saying I support campus carry. That would be great for the movement. But again, it's. Um, this perception of people thinking that in these states that try to push it, you know, I'm sure you think New York, okay, they're not going to push it, you don't think about that. But when you're like looking at Mississippi or Oklahoma that's tried several times and they continue not to push it or get it passed because they can get away with it, and they do. Florida, for example, does the same thing every year. Um, so really it has, it's a grassroots movement and it has to be a student you know, the students have to be the face of it for those representatives to really believe that that's what the students want. Otherwise, all they're looking at is the administrators who 
clearly do not think that we should have our, our Second Amendment rights, our self-defense rights. And people think it's a gun issue. In Massachusetts, for public universities, you're not allowed to even have pepper spray. It's considered a dangerous weapon. Yeah, pepper spray. So it's not a gun issue, it's a self-defense issue. And, um, and they want you though, it's a nanny state, right? They want you to depend on them. And so whatever they can do to make you depend on them and not yourself is good for them. So um, the movement is state by state. Georgia was the last big state to pass that. Um, and uh, we're waiting for the other ones, so, so yeah. But uh, yeah, so uh, what can students at UNR do to promote campus carry or try to get it passed at, at UNR? Yeah, so when is your next, let, we're trying to figure out, when is your next legislative session? You guys just have one? Yeah. 21. 21. Okay. Um, you guys need to, first I would have like a campus carry day or something, write letters to your representatives, right? They want to see that. Letters and phone calls, people don't understand the importance of it. That makes a huge difference, even on the national level. Um, but then you guys on those lobby days, because student government especially is going to go over there and they're going to lobby, you guys need to be there and organize, be together in numbers and be there saying, we support campus carry and we're watching you. Republican, if you decide not to pass it, and you're gonna have to answer to me. So you just need okay. to be there and be in, in numbers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Sorry. It's a lot later for me. East, East Coast time. Um, but I would say too, know who you're voting in the office. Yeah. Do your research. Go to during the last um, presidential election. We were living in Iowa. So I took advantage of going to go see all of the candidates speak. And at the end, I would ask them, hey, what do you think the war on women is? And I'd wait for their answer. And if I didn't like their answer, I didn't vote for them. Because the war on women is that women continue to get raped. Like it's not, or like some form of that, you know, where I'd, I'd ask them too, hey, where, where do you stand on the Second Amendment? Oh, I'm for it. Can you define that for me? <coughs> What does that look like for you? What does for the Second Amendment mean? And if they couldn't give me a, a clear-cut answer, then that was enough for me to know. So if you can't tell me standing face-to-face -face what you believe and what you're going to stand for, Yeah, and I think too, like taking the time to go into your representative's office if you can to set up an appointment and give them a face of like, hey, I'm a student at UNR. This is, you know, these are my hopes and my dreams. This is my aspirations. And, and this is why I want to carry. This is why it's important to me. And uh, just kind of changing the face of that because I think sometimes the narrative gets hijacked by different um, political movements. And um, like Antonia said, just coming together. I think in the process, I've seen a lot of organizations at times fight against each other for the same thing. And I, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like we all need to be rallying together and collaboratively working together to get that goal accomplished. Um, what can women do on campus to protect ourselves while we still don't have campus here? 
reduction right like it's it's all about being aware of your surroundings it's about uh, looking out for each other going in groups like I don't want to say like oh everything I did because obviously at the end of the day it, it didn't work because uh, but I, I reduced my risk I don't know how many times or how many other situations I prevented myself from getting into just by being aware of my my surroundings and I think just having a voice and saying, hey, I want to maintain my story of not being a survivor of rape. Can you please allow me to do that and choose how I want to protect my body? And um, to continue to protect yourself too, just, I mean, uh, it makes me so mad that I see things that the universities put out about like what to do. You know, like just the most repulsive, revolting things. But um, then another conversation that just doesn't really happen is um, if it happens, what do you do? Where do you go? You need to get yourself to the ER and file a report or call the police. And it's incredibly difficult. And um, I, I didn't do it initially. That's like a whole other story and, and um, backstory. But um, a part of that was that it just wasn't second nature to me, like knowing what I needed to do to be able to, to react after the fact was I didn't know that I needed to go to the hospital. All I knew is that I didn't want my body to be a crime scene. And, um, and so I think that if, if more women are encouraged and empowered to be able to do that, then um, criminals would know that they're not going to continue to get away with it as well. And understanding that you're not alone. Like my story, I so wish it was uncommon. I really, really wish that it was an anomaly, but it's not. It's not. It's uncommon because I'm talking about it. It's uncommon because I didn't know my attacker. And it's uncommon because my attacker is never gonna walk the streets again. It shouldn't be uncommon for those reasons. It should not be uncommon for the last reason in particular. I have a question. A couple angles that maybe I'm So I can say, in, in my case, there was no liability on the university's uh, standpoint. I I didn't even pursue or look at potentially suing them. I, at the time, I just really wanted to preserve my anonymity, and um, and so I think perhaps if they they were held liable, while they don't allow us to protect themselves, then that would be maybe the change of a conversation. And even earlier today, Antonia and I were talking about 
like why does the university get to have their own like little due process and why is it not immediately handed over to law enforcement to handle like this isn't plagiarism this isn't a, a collegiate academic issue this is a humanitarian issue and we want to preserve the dignity of our, our students and have it be a safe place for students to be able to come here and learn and carry on their family tradition um, like I wanted to. And so um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think that it would potentially maybe, but I don't even see anything like that. I'm so jaded. I don't see anything like that passing. Yeah. And on the second one, the second question you asked, um, you know, we get, I, got that question all the time and when it after it passed in campus in Texas uh, with the private schools saying no um, several students said okay so the liability aspect okay now what about when there's a mass shooting at this campus what about the liability that they are going to use because they didn't allow me to defend myself you know we always think about the liability of oh because we think Unfortunately, that you know, students are gonna have firearms, and of course, something's gonna happen. Well, these are people who are off campus, responsible people, responsible gun owners um, that take care of their firearms, that take care of themselves, and stuff like that. But we don't think about the opposite of you are now liable if something happens. You should be liable for the fact that you didn't let me to defend myself, whether it's an individual person or a mass shooting, because gun-free zones are defense-free zones, right? And so universities are the biggest defense-free zones in the country, and yet we don't put that pressure on the university when stuff like that when stuff like that happens, and you think of it the other way. Well, and Amanda, as you said, the universities somehow think they're in a little cocoon where they're outside of the criminal justice system that surrounds the college campus. I don't get it. We own, we the taxpayers own yes. all these state schools, all these colleges and universities. We own them. So it, it just, it boggles my mind that nobody seems to step up and say, you aren't going to tell us. We, the students paying the tuition, and we the taxpayers and the donors we need to be dictating to them, not the other way around. And when you have, right now we have 16 states in America who have permitless carry. Mm -hmm. Constitutional carry. Okay. Yeah. And I, constitutional carry, exactly. Kentucky being the last one that's, you know, just fine. When Governor Bevan was elected. And it just, it seems so odd to me in those situations too, why they wouldn't automatically have campus carry. Again, these are state schools and universities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, you bring up such a good point, too, about as students, you need to put pressure on the board, too, of the school, and say, uh-uh, no more. Like, you're supposed to be representing me, and you're not. So, you know, like, and, and just doing the same thing that you do in the state legislature, legislature for that as well. Absolutely. Yes. Um, since the majority of schools don't allow you to carry, are, do they um, so the question was, I think I heard it, was since the majority of schools don't allow carry, do they have sources for you to learn self-defense? 
They may, yes. Okay, so during freshman orientation, when I was coming here, they had this like little two-hour like self-defense class, um, and they had it periodically. And being in a sorority here, it was always really frustrating to me, to be honest, because my sorority sisters would come home with this real big false sense of confidence to be able to actively defend themselves. I think they're good for teaching you how to be aware of your surroundings and maybe some like basic things, but it has to be muscle memory. It has to be instant, this is how I react because I have practiced it for years over and over again. Um, a couple hours of maybe getting a few turns at practicing getting out of a, a grip or a hold, in my opinion, is not effective and is just exploitative to, to women. Um, of the um, of the schools now that have campus carry, mm -hmm. um, is there any data out on mm -hmm. the statistics? Is there a lower rate incidence now on these campuses than others? There's just a lower crime rate in general. Oh, um, so Kansas just uh, a couple years ago passed campus carry, and they actually saw nine in the first semester saw 19 percent decrease in criminal. Um, by their own police. So, yeah, absolutely. So I think much of the conversation focused on the, um, the narrative of the feminist movement. Mm -hmm. And um, I think some of it's been misguided as like it's moved from women empowerment in regards to sexual harassment on campus to the castigation of men after. And so, <laughs> focus on men rather than the empowerment of women, which I think is entirely a feminist issue. So how do you shift that narrative um, to the empowerment of women rather than the men being the primary focus? And like men being villainized? Yeah, they're well, I mean, they're, they're well. doing evil things and they should, I, I think castigation is appropriate, but I don't think it should be the primary focus in, in these cases. Correct. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, so how do we change that focus? Sure. Is that what you're asking? I mean, I think that there does need to be a focus on the offenders versus the victim shaming, because I've been, I've experienced a lot of victim shaming, of, uh, just in my case in general, because I didn't come forward initially. I'm responsible for Breonna Denison's death, and I'm like I received these messages. I'm responsible for all that, and, and instead of no, no, I'm not responsible for that. He's responsible for that. He made that decision, um, and so I think it is. I think it it needs to be together. Not so much like the castigation of men, but um, I'm losing all my fiction. I'm sorry. Um, I think the, the conversation needs to, to more be like brought back to, okay, yeah, that is like very important also, but then let's like get back on track to bring it back to what it was. To, yeah. Yeah. And being able to, um, I think that's another thing too, is that feminism now, our modern fem feminism is all about emasculating men and that's such a disservice to the society and to our culture and to men in general, because men are not encouraged 
to be strong leaders and to be strong men. And we need to be raising our boys to be strong men and to be protectors of like, hey, no, we don't do that. Like, you just don't do that to another human being. And if you see that happening, it is your job to, to be a sheepdog and to go after the person that is attacking another human being. Um, and so it's interesting, my husband and I have this conversation a lot because he's a white male and so he's automatically, you know, an awful human being just because he's white and he's a male. But, um, and he enjoys hunting and hiking and he enjoys doing good things. And, um, and so I think that if, I just, I don't understand why we don't appreciate the diversity and, and how we were all made. And, and acknowledge that we all have important roles to fulfill in this society and not one is, it's not that one is more important than the other, it's just different and that they're meant to complement each other. And part of it too is that, so even uh, the feminist seed, which is like considered one of like one of the Bibles, right, for the feminist movements, particularly a second wave. And and even at the end, the author talks about how a radical faction of the feminist group of the feminist movement, New York, of course. Uh, sorry, New Yorkers. Um, but yeah, a radical faction of the feminist movement took over and made it anti-men. And how she was even pleading, this woman who was one of the co-founders of the League of Women Voters, right? Um, she was even saying, like, no, we need to bring it back to what it was. And, and I always want to encourage conservative women because it was like, oh, conservative feminism is not a thing. Oh, okay. What about Susan B. Anthony, who was uh, pro-life? Or the people who were actually pro-gun, like Wyoming. Wyoming was the first state to allow women to um, to vote and hold public office. You think Wyoming ever was a progressive state? No, it was a pro-gun state, still a pro-gun state. Um, so those values that we have as pro-gun women, as pro-life women, are what the original feminist movement was about, and they had the leaders who were pushing that. They had Christian women who were pushing, I mean, I don't say the prohibition was the best thing, but they pushed the prohibition movement. That was part of the feminist movement. Um, so we have to go back and educate where are the original feminist movement actually began, where the women's suffrage movement, where the women's empowerment movement started, and educate people now who think that that radical faction is representative of the feminist movement. It's not. It's a lie. You mentioned uh, Pepper Spray earlier. Who's serious your opinion on Pepper uh, Spray and tasers and uh, why that would be satisfying for some of the last Yeah. Well, I was just going to say. Um, well, let me talk to a lot of law enforcement people and then ask them if they really even use pepper spray. <laughs> uh, so ask them if, you know, the best thing for them is always going to be the firearm. Of course, again, it is your right to choose if you feel comfortable with the firearm and want to use it. Uh, completely two different things, too. Um, I'm a I'm a NRA certified firearms instructor. And... Uh, <laughs> 
so, and I teach women actually on, in Colorado, you can teach women, um, or teach men too, but I, I teach women, um, particularly to get their concealed carry permits. Um, it's actually quite easy there. Um, and, and the biggest thing is they always ask me a question, and at the end of the day, do you think your attacker's trying to figure out what the least amount of force they can use in order to, to, to use against you? No, they're gonna use the, in that sense, they're smart, right? Um, and so why would I encourage you, right, if you're comfortable with using that, to go with any um, amount of force that's less than what's typically used um, with a criminal, so. Right. Yeah. And with that, pepper spray. Uh, my, I kind of can't pepper spray, like, accidentally go off. It is not pleasant. <laughs> and it, the effects are wide-reaching. So if I'm going to spray my attacker with pepper spray, I'm probably going to succumb to that. Especially here in Reno, where it, it's a little windy at times, and, and the wind comes from multiple directions. Um, so there's that. You, you better make sure that your pepper spray is uh, not expired. That could be really bad if you're trying to spray someone with pepper spray and there's no effects. They're going to be pretty tipped off, too. Um, and then with, I also think about, it's so funny, my dad, I don't know why I always get this image in my head, but so my dad was getting ready to go on a, a big hunt and he knew that he would be potentially encountering bears. My parents have a property up in um, Great Eagle, so he was asking some of the neighbors, like, hey, what's, what's some good like self-defense I can have against a bear? Um, I heard that this, like, you know, bear repellent is really good, and the neighbor said, yeah, I heard that too. I sprayed it on my trash cans to keep them from getting into my trash, and the next morning I went out there, and the bear was holding the lid and licking off the repellent. <laughs> like, it was just a nice seasoning, and so, I just think that opposition needs to be met with equal force. Yeah. And as far as the is concerned, you have to let your attacker get a whole lot closer than I'm comfortable with to be able to effectively use a taser. You better make sure they don't have a really thick sweater on because it may not reach through all the layers that you're wearing. Um, and so I just I don't know that it's it's really all that effective. I was in Iowa hunting last year, and they were just like, yeah, a taser during the winter season, that's cool, that's cute. Uh, that's not gonna do anything. Um, but yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think I saw a hand go up back there. No? Oh, okay, all right. Yes, sir. Oh, like shootouts over campus dis over discussion and yeah, you can get shot. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them, but and I just think it's it's really interesting too because they bring up all of these scenarios that could happen, and I sit there and think like. I understand that that may be in their reality, in their lens of how they're looking through everything. That is their reality. That is a legitimate fear that they have. And I always ask them, what's going to stop that from happening now? Yeah. What's going to stop a student now from coming onto, into your office hours if they're really upset 
about a grade you gave them and shooting you. I don't understand. I and I, I, I get told I don't understand that question. Okay. Um, what's going to stop somebody from coming into your classroom now or a student getting really agitated and potentially opening fire if they choose to carry a gun on campus? And I get a blank stare. Um, and so I think it, it is just, so no, I, none of that stuff has happened, but you bring up a really good point of how we need to have those discussions with people and understand that that's where they are, and for them, it is a real legitimate concern, and they are terrified of that happening. But opening up the door of, okay, well, so let's talk about that. What about this? What about that? And they use the same thing in Texas. So in Texas, they use all of those arguments. They use, well, drunk students are going to use it, and they're going to have you know their firearms on them. They're like, yeah, because they're not drunk concealed carry permit holders outside of campus who also have their firearms and yet you know obey the law, right? Um, they do it all the time. Uh, with the defense, I wanted to bring up some statistics on that. Uh, so the CDC did a survey in uh, 2013. Um, and they actually found that up from um, 500,000 to 3 million people a year use firearms in self-defense. CEC, okay? So when people are like, oh yeah, for me, you're gonna use all these NRA statistics. Like, yeah, actually not. It was actually Obama who <laughs> pushed that and also it was the CDC. So um, things like that and then also the fact that the ones before Texas, they use it a lot of what's gonna happen if they have firearms on campus or gonna they're going to use it against other people, especially men, and blah, blah, blah. Like, well, the actual instances that actually happened on campus were all negligent discharges. They were people showing their fire, their brandishing their firearm or doing something that they were not supposed to be doing anyways, and most of the time it, it was actually affecting them, maybe one other person, but it affected them the most, but no other um, no other shootouts, no other using the firearm who's a legally um, concealed carry permit holder uh, against another student, nothing like that. You know if it happens, you're going to hear about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, sir. I'm going to add a little to that. I graduated from the University in 1970. In those days, we had what we call the Mackey days. 40% of the student body was armed with teeth. Nobody ever got shot. It's the culture. We gotta take the culture back. So instead of like having a firearm in time of a rape, what preventative measures could you put in like the climate like on like on campus and the kind of like uh, culture around the area 
to prevent that rate from ever kind of coming. I think we've been trying to do that for several years, and how's that working? Um, I just don't understand why they have to be mutually exclusive. Why can't we do both? And I think also, unfortunately, a lot of those people, I mean, that's why I said that I changed my views after I became a born-again Christian, because when you realize that it is human nature that we're sinners, and we're gonna, yeah. regardless Absolutely. of the culture, we're, and regardless of the yeah. laws, people are going to continue to sin, then mm -hmm. that is why we have to defend the yeah. people who are going to protect themselves and protect other people. Yeah, we live in a broken, fallen world. So right. there's always gonna, unfortunately, be people that are bent on doing evil. Thank you guys.